Hello and welcome to Bergcast, the podcast where we look at the work of Nigel Neal on film, television, radio and elsewhere and examine his legacy as well, which is what we're doing this time with an interview with the veteran writer of television and novelist Stephen Gallagher. We talked with Stephen about the influence of Nigel Neal on his own work and then moved on to talk about the trajectory of Stephen's career as he started from Doctor Who and then moved on to TV shows like Chimera, October and 11th Hour. Over the space of about an hour we discussed Stephen's process, we asked the question as to whether uh, more TV shows should be scripted according to Stan Lee's Marvel method and we asked the question will the bits of the Lost Warriors Gate novelisation ever see the light of day. This is Birdcast with special guest Stephen Gallagher. So, first of all, uh, welcome to Birdcast, Stephen Gallagher. Well, thank you. Not at all, not at all. Can you let us know your first memory of anything to do with, with Nigel Neal, because I understand it's uh, it's quite it's quite a specific and quite an early one. It is. I mean, I would, I must have been about what six or seven, probably no older than that. I mean, I, I could probably work it out, but I'm not good at maths. But I was very very young, and we went to a family party at my uncle George's house. And um, the weird thing was, at a certain point, everybody quietened down. And the TV was rolled out because this was back in the days when, you know, the TV was tucked away and was only brought out for specific programs. And everybody sat down and watched Quatermass. And I don't recall there being any kind of um, hesitation or concern about having the little kids in the room while it was on. Um, But it was the most kind of... um, It was the tensest atmosphere of anything I'd known. This was a family party and this was my family and I just, you know, wasn't used to this kind of thing. And I sat and I watched it. I don't think we had a TV ourselves at home at that point. We only got a TV um, around the time that um, Doctor Who had been on for a while and I pestered for it. And uh, yeah, um, six or seven years old, you know, there we are, family party, Uncle George's house. They rolled the TV out and on came what I now know was Quatermass and the Pit. I had no idea what uh, what everybody was watching at that point. I had no idea what I was in for. Watched it absolutely fascinated. And the weird thing is that for years and years and years, I carried a memory of that night and it was a specific image. And the image was of, um, of a, a kind of wet cave down at sea level somewhere. And there was a boat in the cave and there was a creature slowly detaching itself from the slime on the wall and taking human form. And the weird thing is that years and years later, I saw Quatermass and the Pit again. There is no such scene in it. And yet, this is an incredibly vivid memory. And I suppose it's not that I'm confusing it with something else. It's very specific. But I suppose what it is, is it's a demonstration of how your own imagination transforms the raw material that's been fed into it and produces new stuff. Because I then you yeah. know, had an image that I could use in something that was entirely personal to me but which had its roots in, in, the, um, in the feeling that something else, you know, in this case, Quatermass and the Pit Nigel Neal had created. So in a way, that was the kind of uh, sperm that entered my imagination in those days and, um, and, and kind of took root. And I, I don't know to what extent it shaped me from that point onwards, because I think I was wide open to that kind of thing. And it was the kind of thing that I was ready for. But certainly, um, as part of my junior landscape, Nigel Neal was probably the first, 
the first piece of television that really registered itself with me and the uh, the first named writer that uh, that I came to know in in later years as well Nigel Neal and then H.G. Wells entered my consciousness as well Neal and Wells were the two science fiction people that everybody knew in the 1950s and uh, moving into the early 60s they were the names that everyone was familiar with and I remember right. Clive James um, in his book on fame said that you can be well known in your own field but you're not famous until people who know nothing of your field have also heard of you so Nigel Neal was that kind of tv superstar in the early days whether you knew tv writers or not you knew Nigel Neal whether you knew science fiction writers or not, you knew the name of H.G. Wells. And the two of them, I suppose, you know, one for TV and one for literature, you know, they were my two, uh, my two professional parents back in the day before I even knew it. And how um, soon after, the, how early was it, do you think, when you first formulated that being a writer or taking such images as you've been, as you, as, as you've been given was something that you wanted to, to pursue as a career? I was doing it even then, you know, yeah. I mean, as, um, as, a, as a little kid at primary school, I was writing my own stories and illustrating my own stories and, uh, and then, you know, reading them out to the class or reading them out in the playground. Um, and I remember the very, uh, the very first story I wrote was, it was a ghost story. You know, it was, a, it was a, a, a new ghost who went to school and made all the mistakes of, um, of, of a new boy not knowing the rules and um, of course ghosts were really easy to draw as well because you just draw the sheet and you put the eyes on them so. did you use use the image of the um, of the creature detaching itself um, in one of your own books or later on never that specifically never with the the wet cave and the boat and the um, and the creature on the wall but I've certainly used that feeling again and again and again um, you know and it's something that I can reach for whenever I want to um, whenever I want to reach for something that is mine and mine alone that will inspire an image or a piece of story that is not derived directly and obviously from something I've I've seen or am imitating then it's that sensation I always go back to and in a way, right. it, it'd feel like cheating if I used it just as it was, because uh, it doesn't feel like quite mine. You know, it's <laughs> it's the halfway house between you know the uh, the inspiration and uh, and and my own executions. I'm yes. thinking about what it what it could be, and I suppose the first thing that leaps to mind is the cliffhanger to the third episode of *Some Demons*, when Rudy and uh, Quatermass open the uh, open the, the sealed compartment of the capsule, and you first see the creature. And there's one of the creature moves, and you, there's an initial shock from, mm. from Colonel Breen because he thinks it's uh, and because he thinks it, it's it's alive. And Rudy says, you know, oh, don't worry, they're 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 quite dead. Mm. Uh, but they're all strung up with uh, string, which we later learn is is the controls of the of, of, of the ship. But it could, yeah. I think, that could be quite wet. Scene is quite wet and slimy, and the creature moving could be could be detaching entirely possible i mean I, it was years before i got to see it again because yeah, obviously sure. you didn't have access to no. um to to repeats or uh, or you know personal showings of anything back then you had to wait for it to come around again or wait for it to be shown at the nft or whatever if mm -hmm. um if you were able to get to the nft when i did get to see quatermass in the pit i was um i was really pleasantly surprised by uh, by how well made and how 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 sharp and how good it was, because I'd seen the um, the, the existing footage of Quatermass experiment, which um, is not in great shape. Um, I don't think I'd seen Quatermass two at that point. But when I saw Quatermass in the pit, I was expecting something like you know just um, ju just 
salvaged old footage on, on a telly recording. And what did strike me was that um, along with all the nice crisp studio work, you had a lot of 35 millimeter inserts um, done on, um, you know, really, uh, really high quality film. What struck me as well was that whenever you got an action sequence, like a fight or somebody being hurled to the floor or anything that required, you know, difficult staging, then um, it went to 35 mil. They, they shot the fights in 35 mil and dropped them in in the studio. So um, that was quite a sophisticated technique then, because when I started working in television, TV had almost abandoned 35 mil and any film got shot on 16 mil. And the weird thing is now, stuff that was shot in the 60s on 35 now looks far more modern than anything that was shot in the 80s on 16. Yeah, that's true. Because of the is. higher resolution. Yeah, I mean, do, I mean do, by the time of Doctor Who, they certainly weren't using 35 mils for the no. location for location work, mm. um, simply because it was it was it was it, it was far too expensive. And let's not forget also, Quantum Mass Experiment was uh, recorded live and broadcast, broadcast live. So those 35 million inserts were being inserted and transmitted live yeah. while the actors while the actors were in the studio. Which is no mean feet feet. when you when you consider, no. you know, you have to count film in it, it has yeah. to get up to speed, and then you have to coordinate it with your live stuff on the studio floor. But they did that in those days. It was, you know, part of the art. And sometimes yeah. they got it wrong and- uh, I think with, and, with, with, the car, with Rudolf Cartier's three greater masses and probably adding the, the, yeah. 19, the 1984 baited together, from experiment to pit, you can really see, I think, the evolution of sort of TV industry. And well, yeah, TV I mean, the 1984 technology. was remarkable as well. Yeah. I, mean, I never saw that on its first transmission. I only mm. saw that in uh, in later years. So uh, so I never saw it live. I only saw the tele-recording. But even so, I've never seen a better version. And, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it's superior to the John Hurt version. It's certainly superior to the, um, the, the Edmund O'Brien version. With its with its happy ending, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Let's uh, let's hope we um, with the Orwell estate now passing the uh, the fifty year rule mm. that there'll be a way to get that to get that out because that's not there's not a there's not a commercial been a commercial release of that. Having been hooked at an early age with the memory of of Quatermass the Pit, did you then keep up with subsequent Nigel Neal uh, productions when you could? Not until later. Not until um, I'd say the next one that really, really hit me was um, the Stone Tape mm. in 72. Um, this was, um, it was Christmas Day, was it not? Or was it Christmas well, Eve? It was, it was a Christmas broadcast. The thing is, around that time, I missed out on Beasts and Moraine because that was the time when I was at university. Right. And the only time you could watch TV was in the junior common room, you know, the shared TV. And, you know, basically, you know, I had other things going on at that time and TV watching was not, very high on the list. I think everybody used to assemble in the JCR for Doctor Who and Star Trek. Um, but, you know, nine o'clock at night, you know, certainly we were all down the bar. So uh, so I missed out on those. But Stone Tape absolutely blew me away. And I would say that if I had to pick one thing out of Neil's career that, um, you know, if if I had to lose the rest and just keep one, Stone Tape would be the one. And I rewatched it the other night, and I watched it with the um, with the Kim Newman, Nigel Neal commentary track running as well. And um, God, there is so much in that that I could happily steal from for the uh, for the rest of my life. <laughs> what do you think it is about, in particular, uh, the, the, the Stone Tape that, that that you singled that one out as a, as a shining example? I think well, it's it's emblematic of everything that Neal did, which is that he takes the world of myth, imagination, superstition, 
and um, and um, and magic, and applies a kind of forensic scientific approach to it. So it becomes like magic for grown-ups. And mm. you look at something like um, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which was very much um, a, a Nigel Neal tribute movie, where a bunch of scientists move into a house and basically let the devil out. I mean, that's a Nigel Neal thing without Nigel Neal's hand on it. Um, but you can sort of see the uh, the DNA that goes straight from one to another. I did a, sh um, a novella, not a short story, a novella called uh, Doctor Hood, which was kind of a tribute to the stone tape where... Um, a bereaved um, scientist tries to kind of contact the uh, the spirit of his dead wife using his students and um, and taking a scientific approach to ghost phenomena, just as right. Stone Tape. So it was my that was my kind of tribute, and that character is the uh, the character that I later built on for um, for a show called The Eleventh Hour, mm. which um, which it was a rocky ride for me um, and. Um, I tried to channel the spirit of Nigel Neal, and I think, you know, to a certain extent I did, but, um, but I ran up against uh, various obstacles on that one. But at the end of the day, you know, sometimes your worst experiences lead to your best ones. Yeah. Was, would you say then that the, um, the character of Dr. Hood was then directly inspired by Professor Quatermass? Yeah, when I was pitching it, I said, you know, it's, um, it's Bernard Quatermass and uh, Emma Peel take on the, um, the problems of, of the science community. And I was, um, I was very, very kind of um, insistent that this was going to be a science show. It wasn't going to be a science fiction show. It was going to be a show which applied science to um, fictional scenarios. So as with Chimera, where we were basically talking about the Frankenstein story, but done as modern science would do it, um, all of the 11th hour scenarios that I put forward were solid science stories where phenomena were approached or attacked or um, or investigated with genuine scientific tools and there was to be nothing in that show that was uh, that was kind of bollock science or made up science this is where i kind of fell out with the producers over that because you know i i asked for a producer with uh, with a, a science background if we could get hold of one at least somebody in the production chain with a science background and uh, and didn't get one i got all these humanities people who reckoned that scientific opinion is just another opinion and their opinion counted just as much so i was at continuous loggerheads over uh, over that show but then jerry brookheimer picked it up in uh, in the states and, um, and with rufus sewell instead of patrick stewart yeah it it, it kind of got refashioned right, yeah. but I, I i kind of like that version better you know i think it worked better because, oh right yeah because because um, you wrote a couple of those as well didn't you i did i went over there and i did whale of a time you know and um and it was like you know how um orson wells described um you know a movie set as being the greatest train set that uh, a kid mm. could wish for and it and it is you know a, a hollywood film crew doing basically what you sat in a room and made up it, and to sit there and watch it and also to have them defer to you because that's the thing that happens in hollywood that you don't get in britain you know the uh, the crew is deferential to the writer if they want to change something they turn to you and they ask um, oh wow interesting and, and of course you give your approval because what you're faced with is the practical problems that they're being faced with you're not a writer who's handed over a piece of work from from olympus and um and you know you're giving it to this uh, this workforce to spoil it you're in there with them you're all making a show together and i i tend to say these days you know when i'm on on something like that i don't regard myself as a writer i regard myself as a showmaker 
Yeah, and um, there are a lot of people involved in making a show, and the writer kind of has the loudest voice and kind of has the um, you know the steering hand, uh, which is, <laughs> as a writer I think it should be. But you know you are in there to um, to take the resources and to mould them to uh, to make something that an audience will really understand, accept, and enjoy. How does that compare to to your earliest? Um work as a writer on television because uh, the Doctor Who serial Warriors Gate had a notably um, troubled um, production period in, in, in certain, certain, certainly in the studio. Did you feel similar in that way or was that very much you've had, you'd, hand, you'd handed the work over and now someone else was, was, was working on it? I've got a very long perspective on Warriors Gate because we're looking back almost 40 years now, yeah. if not actually 40 years. And um, I was very green at the time, um, new to television. I mean, I worked in television, but mm. I, um, I was new to television drama, fizzing with ideas, looking to get all those ideas in, not in the position of being a showmaker, but being in the position of the writer who hands over the work to showmakers, and then the showmakers go off and make the compromises and changes that it would have been nice to have been part of. Whether I could have been part of them because I was inexperienced, I don't know. But writers in, uh, in British TV at that time didn't get the chance to learn anything about the, um, the, the requirements of production. You know, what happened was that you, um, you met with the script editor. You, you'd maybe meet the producer once. You did all your dealing with the script editor. The script editor was the intermediary between you and the producer. And I, I, I always kind of took the attitude that the script editor was only there so the producer wouldn't have to talk to writers. Um, and then having got all your notes filtered back through the editor, you would write, rewrite, 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 hand over. And then that's really the last you would see of your script. You would maybe get an invitation to spend one day on the set, standing with your mouth shut watching. But that's the only involvement that you had with the actual making of the show. And it was a long time before I was able to, uh, to get more hands-on and more involved with that. That happened with Chimera, and that was a good 10 years later. And in the meantime, I think I'd, um, I'd worked very little in television. I was mainly doing novels then, and I worked on a thing called Rockless Folly, which is a completely forgotten... Um, uh, my, my, oh, my, yes. da my, my dad was a big fan. Oh, Rockliffe, is that right? The Rockcliffe series, yes. Because oh, there was Rockcliffe yeah. Babies, which everybody yes. said. Mine too, yeah. yeah. Rockcliffe Folly, which nobody's heard of. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was a really nice experience. And, uh, and also, it was the first experience I had of the script more or less making it through intact and being shot as written. Um, but oh. inevitably, yeah, the, the, uh, the most vital shots that you thought the story was all about were the ones that they didn't have time to get on the day. So... <laughs> I know you're aware now. Were you aware at the time that you were uh, you were commissioned for Doctor Who by, by Chris Bibmead that he'd already also approached Nigel Neal at that, that same time to see if he wanted to write? I was aware of that, yeah. I mean, he was... Chris came in and he was very kind of um, eager to bring in the science fiction community and to... Uh, and I, I know he approached Chris Priest and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Chris Priest is still angry, <laughs> but uh, he's quite angry generally. Well, yeah, yeah, but I, I admire Chris greatly. I was on a panel with him many, many years ago, and it was the four ages of science fiction. Right, and there was me, Chris Priest, uh, Fred Pohl, and I forget who else was on it. I think there were four of us. Certainly, I was kind of the junior of the two, and Chris was in the middle, and Frederick Pohl was was at the end. And then Fred died and we've kind of both moved up and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where we'd sit on the table now. 
but yeah, um, I, I did hear that uh, that he'd approach Neil. I, I would love to have seen what Neil said to him. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it wasn't the first time he was approached. Yeah, the, the, it was the last time, and I think only only ignorance of previous approaches led yeah. people later on to to to, uh, to to approach. He wasn't someone who to uh, to let you down gently. I, I mean, bear in mind, you know, Doctor Who was not. It, it was loved, but it wasn't respected um, at that time. Yeah, that's um, true. Well, I think it's interesting because when he was first um, brought to aware of, of, of Doctor Who, there's a, it's got, I think it's no longer exists, but he was on late night lineup with Verity Lambert. And his initial problem with Doctor Who was that it was too scary for children, hmm. uh, which is, which people have sometimes a surprise that Neil would have, would have, would have, would have that. And then his later, his later problem with, um, uh, with Doctor Who in the early John Pertwee era, that it just nicked his, like, nicked his stories wholesale. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch John Pertwee's first episode and then you watch the first episode of Quatermass 2, it's, mm. uh, it's a little bit from there. Um, it long enough and we'd all be at it, you know? <laughs> yeah, true enough as well. But do you think, I mean, uh, so as, a, as a, you see, as the experience of a, a, a young writer on TV, it was very much, you handed over whether that was the BBC at the time or just how writers were in, were in Britain. But do you think you're far more positive experience now with working on the, the US version of, of, of 11th Hour is partly to do with your status as a, you know, an, a, an experienced and respected writer? Or is that well, yeah. just the case with, with all writers? I mean, I've always, I've always sort of pushed to be involved. Um, and the first time that I really got the chance to be involved was on Chimera because the circumstances behind it were that uh, we'd along with zenith um and simon moorhead who originally optioned it we touted it around every uk tv outlet you know we'd gone to the bbc first and they said no we'd gone to all the big five itv companies and they all said no we'd then started to work our way around all the smaller companies and they'd said no and we were kind of you know we, we had it made fairly plain to us that nobody wanted to make chimera they all did the usual thing of you know we love this but it's not for us sorry can i just ask you've already written the book i written a... the book in 1980 and this was in 1990 right okay and in the meantime i'd done a radio adaptation of it that i okay. was really pleased with um because a lot of my early stuff was radio alongside novels and tv but radio you know, and I always give it credit for, for being my writing school because radio took me in when I was completely unknown and had never written anything, you know, and, and they gave me, well, my first experience was at a local radio station, Piccadilly Radio in Manchester. I did a science fiction serial for them um, and it was the first thing of its kind on to be networked on independent radio. And with a cold submission, I got onto Saturday Night Theatre, Radio 4, and did uh, several of those and a couple of adaptations. I did an afternoon theatre adaptation of H.G. Wells. During that time, I was having my bad TV experience, but I was having this great radio experience, which in, in a way is the one that I always go back to, you know, when I need practical memories and practical lessons of, um, of you know, just how this kind of thing is done. So my entire technique is still based in, you know, the way that I developed my ideas and my thoughts for the radio plays. Um, I apply it to the novels, I apply it to the TV, I'm applying it to, um, to writing for comics at the moment. I'm, I'm writing a, a graphic which is an absolutely new departure for me and I'm having great fun doing that. Who are you doing that for? Uh, I can't tell you yet, it's, uh, it's oh, all okay. under wraps but in due course. That's terribly exciting yeah. though, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? it? Well yeah, I mean you know it came out of nowhere and, uh, and you know I was asked to do it and I sort of hovered for, for you know 10 minutes and then said yeah why not let's have a go and then the more I thought about it, the uh, 
the more momentum it gained. Do you find the stage directions in writing comic panels um, comes easier to you having written um, television stages and cuts and things like that and scene scenes? Well, I, I asked Andy Diggle for advice. You know, Andy Diggle, um, he writes... Of 2000 AD, he's, yeah. He's, he, yeah, and he's, he's done 2000 AD. He's done Doctor Who comics. He's, um, he, he did The Losers. Yeah. And I said, you know, can, can, you, can I have a look at one of your old scripts just to see how it's done? And he says, well, have you got Final Draft screenwriting software? He says, because I use that. And he sent me a couple of his old uh, Doctor Who scripts. And sure enough, you know, he's using exactly the same software that I do exactly the same layout i also got examples of uh, of matt wagner and, and alan moore and, uh, and a couple of others all right so that i could kind of cherry pick as to um as to what technique i uh, i wanted to use and i also talked to the artist and said look you know what what format is easiest for you and he said oh, i can more or less manage anything he said and uh, and so I, I i i went with with andy's advice and andy's following and it's you know, it's kind of like second nature almost. You do have to think about the medium. You know, you don't, uh, you know, you don't put in movement. You have kind of Godardian cuts rather than uh, than than cinematic yes. movement. But um, you know, I, I kind of felt as if I was eighty percent of the way there already, and I just needed to to finesse my style for it. Nice. But we've gone off into comics. What were we talking about before? Uh, we, you'd uh, gone to the smaller ITV companies about Shamira. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'd, uh, we'd done the circuit of them. And then out of the blue came this phone call from, um, from Brenda Reed at Anglia saying, is Chimera still available? And what had happened was that they had, um, they had four hours of network drama time allocated to them which for Anglia was a big thing because Anglia was not one of the big five you know the big five were like Granada, Yorkshire, Thames, LWT and Granada anyway the uh, the big five they kind of dominated the schedules and the program controllers would meet two or three times a year and carve up the uh, the hours between them and the smaller companies who didn't have such great drama budgets would um, would get a few hours each you know and they would be hotly contested for and they use those hours to shine because the great thing about ITV in those days is it was this federal system of, um, of regional companies. Every single one of them had a program controller. Every program controller hated all the other program controllers and would take any opportunity to, um, to get one up on them. And the way that they did it was with prestige drama. This is how Brideshead Revisited came about. You know, this is how the, the Dick, Charles Dickens Hard Times came about. It was um, it was David Plowright kind of showing you know who's the top dog on uh, on the ITV network. Anglia had got their um, their four hours um, mapped out later in the year, and they were doing a co-production with a guy from Belgium, um, as I understand it. And the Belgian co-producer dropped out, leaving them with um, no drama. And of course, it would have been a terrible thing to give up the four hours that they'd fought so hard for. So they looked for something that could be turned around in the available slot. And Chimera was, was kind of there and it was fully, you know, fully worked out, fully written, an experienced company in Zenith, uh, and it was ready to go. And so it was really kick bollock and scramble to get it made. Uh, and we had to um, we had to cut some corners and make some compromises along the way, but on the other hand, you know that's how that's how the uh, the offbeat stuff gets gets through. And I always say, you know, you have right. to have a lot of luck in this game, but the only way to have a lot of luck is to keep throwing yourself in its way, and eventually, you know, it'll run over you. And that's how Chimera came to be made, and um, it was a big advance. And because 
it was so kick bollock and scramble there was plenty of opportunity for me to get involved and so they sent me down to pinewood to meet with image animation the um the people who did the special effects and i hung out a lot there and i hung out on the set all the time and i turned up all the time and uh, and i was there for every stage of it and i remember at one point i got a phone call saying steve we're uh, we're about uh, three quarters of the way into the shoot for the first episode and the episodes are running under. And um, I had this thing, I'd worked out that a page of my stuff usually equated to about 50 seconds on the screen or, or on the radio. And the right. wisdom is that it's a page to a minute. But for some reason, my, my stuff worked out 50 seconds to the page. And I was kind of confident about this, but everybody else was working a page to a minute. So a lot of stuff was cut out of the Chimera episodes um, to bring them down to what they thought was the right page length. And when they actually came to shoot them, uh, they ran short. And there was somebody on the set timing every shot. So they were able to see as the shots built up how long the episode was going to be. And you could estimate, you know, from the material you had, how much you were going to need to complete it and how, much, how many pages you had to go. And there was this panic call because there was not going to be enough material on any of the episodes. We were going to be several minutes long on, uh, on some of them. So overnight, um, I wrote a bunch of scenes that could be shot in the area where they were shooting at the time, which I think was somewhere near King's Cross. And there was also a scene on a bus because we had a bus that we were using for something else. So I could use that. You see, we couldn't just reinstate the pages that had been taken out. That's what I was going to ask. You could wind up doing the stage, but it's logistics, presumably. It logistics, be, yeah. yeah. Some of the sets had already gone. Some of the locations had already gone. Some of the locations we didn't have because those pages had been cut. So we had to work within what we had and this is where the whole kind of showmaking thing comes on because right. if you're in there you can do that and um and so i wrote half a dozen scenes um for different episodes to bring them back up to length one of them was um a very early uh, a very early screen appearance of liza tarbuck um on a bus with uh, with john lynch um another one was an encounter with uh, with a city trader um, with a heroin habit and some of them turned out to be, you know, some of the best scenes in the whole thing. They played really well. They were done in a hurry. Um, they were written overnight and they were slotted in and they brought the episodes back up to length. And they didn't look as if they'd been grafted no, on. No, they didn't. And I was um, just thinking of the, um, the scene in particular with, um, with Lisa Tarbuck when, mm. uh, because it looks like an inventive way of getting uh, John Lynch's character on the bus because she's got that yucca plant, doesn't she, or whatever, and it's mm. like hiding his face to get on. And then there's that you know sequence which has nothing to do with the plot, which is um, she's visiting her husband in in prison, yeah, uh, but she's having an affair yeah. uh, back home. And that was one of my oh, that's quite neoian, isn't it? It's nothing to it's, <laughs> it's nothing to do with the plot, but it world builds really effectively. Yeah. And while you're talking to this person, you know. You know massive decisions or tragedy is taking is taking place elsewhere there's this big drama going on but in the middle we just have this just this just this just this moment and neil's neil's really was, was really good at that too and it's interesting to know that was that was yeah, thrown people in. being people yeah indeed but that i now learned that was thrown in the night before <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's, that's it was really and it kind of taught me that when you do that kind of thing and when you add that kind of scene it does add value you know so that was a, a stage along my the way of my education when did you learn that um Lawrence Gordon Clark was going was going to direct it. Presumably, you you knew who he was. I did, I did, and um, and it was. 
I mean, yeah, as I say, the whole thing was done in a terrific hurry. Mm. And they needed, you know, a safe pair of hands, as they called it. And Lawrence, as one of the most experienced directors in the business, was A, a safe pair of hands, and B, a genre guy. Yeah. And from the beginning, I mean, we got on really well, I think, anyway. You know, I mean, Lawrence might say different, but no, no, he wouldn't say different because we worked again later and, and it was at his instigation. So, so I, know, I know he was happy. <laughs> We've kept in touch since. I've not, uh, I've not been in touch for a year or two, um, but last I heard he was, um, he was working on a graphic novel with somebody about the early days of, uh, of Carswell from, uh, from the... Uh, Casting the Ruins. Yeah, 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 from Casting Loons, the early days of Carswell in in Germany in the 1930s. And I, I don't know what's become of that project. You've, you've reminded me now, I must chase oh, okay. it. Okay. What did um, Chimera look like when it was first scripted before Angry? What, what were you sending around? I mean, because they had four hours worth of drama, but what did did you have to do to turn that into? Was it- we had the first episode fully written, and we had the, uh, the other three kind of broken down into, um, into treatment form. I mean, I'm never, I'm never quite sure what's the difference between an outline and a treatment and um, a beat sheet, as, as the Americans call it. I just kind of work the story out and then break it down into scenes. And, and usually I'm thinking in scenes from the very beginning. If I do an outline, I can usually go to script without changing that outline very much. And I never leave a thing and move on until it's in some form of, it's got some form of closure to it. So I'll do an outline and I won't leave things, I won't leave problems unsolved for the future. I'll lock it down before I move on to something else. And then if in six months, a year's time, that outline is sold and I then move to script, I'm not faced with something that's kind of half worked or, um, or half arsed or, um, or has, I, yeah, I've not left myself problems for further down the road. There will be new problems. I don't need old problems to go with them. Was it four episodes from the start then? It was, yeah, it was always four episodes. Oh, okay, that's right, yeah. Um, and the, uh, the first episode really is kind of everything that took place before the book. So the book actually opens with the um, aftermath of the ending of episode one. Right, so what I, I was about was, to ask yeah. what, what you changed and um, adapting it. Why did you feel that you thing. needed to sort of like lead build up to what happens? Because otherwise, you know, you'd only get it through conversation. And I always remember Colin Welland saying when, when they were doing Chariots of Fire, um, they'd been around all the production houses looking for money to make it as a movie. And then it was mooted, well, maybe we could do it for television. And he said that his heart sank at that moment because all of a sudden it wouldn't be about the events. It would be conversations about the events. And I've always thought that's the worst kind of, uh, of drama, conversations about the events. What you want right. to do is witness the incidents. And this is why dialogue in, uh, in film and TV for new writers, you know, when you're a new writer and you're writing a screenplay, you think it's all about the dialogue and you try and make your dialogue clever. But I always remember Hitchcock saying, um, there was some quote about, you know, once the screenplay is written and the dialogue's been put in. And I thought, Hitchcock, you crafty bugger, you know, you don't do the dialogue. You, you, you work the whole thing out and then you add the dialogue afterwards. And it's almost like kind of Marvel technique, you know, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. I was literally about to say that. Yeah. yeah. Jack Kirby used to lay the scenes out, he used to lay the pages out, and then Stan Lee would come in, or, or one of Stan Lee's surrogates, going by the name of Stan Lee, would come in and, you know, add the dialogue in the appropriate places. And it works so well because. You know, you don't necessarily need the dialogues to be telling you the story if other things are telling you the story as well. 
So, I remember reading something written by um, Jean Giraud, the mm. um, French illustrator yeah. who did um, The Silver Surfer with Stanley one time. Wow. And yeah. he said doing it, he Stanley just sort of gives him an outline. He drew the outline. Mm. And then he was sort of surprised that like he'd sort of drawn like a couple of sort of background characters. And mm. These characters had like dialogue balloons yeah. at the end yeah. and he hadn't intended them to. It just, yeah. it just happens. Yeah. It's a lovely way of doing things if you if you're set up for it and if you um, you know if you've got a bunch of collaborators who who can work together and who trust each other and you know I mean Kirby and Lee Dream Team. Actually, yeah, I was just checking what you did work on with Lawrence Gordon Clark afterwards, and it was, of course it was Chiller, which I remember. Yes, yeah, yeah you, you did um, two two episodes of that. Was um, they were adapted from were they adapted from your radio? Um, one of them was adapted from a radio play and another right. was a Peter James novel, Prophecy, uh, which ah, yes. Lawrence was very keen on and, and he asked me to read it and he said, you know, do you think you could adapt it? Uh, and I said, yeah. Uh, what was great about Prophecy and, and what I really like about it, looking back even now, is that we took the whole novel and we did it in an hour and we did it properly in an hour. And you don't really get that these days. What you get now is a novel, a, you know, a short novel, and then you get six, ten hours out of it. And a lot of that six to ten hours is treading water or unnecessary added plot or, you know, overextension. Whereas what we did was we compressed it. And I know, unless he was lying, Peter said that he was really pleased with the results as well. And we've stayed friends ever since. So, uh, so, I'm taking that as the truth. Um, and you know, I do recall that it was it worked really well because we got a lot of story onto the screen. And that's one of the things that um, I always remember Brian Eastman, um, the producer I worked with on, on bugs in October, um, making a comment on, uh, on a script once. And it wasn't one of my scripts. It was one of the bug scripts. I was consulting on the show for, uh, for that one, but he was looking at the scripts and saying, you know, act, uh, act three there. I said, I don't think we've got enough story. And the idea of story as, a kind of measurable, quantifiable amount of stuff that goes in there um, struck me quite hard. I thought, yeah, you know, you do need a certain amount of story to, um, to make a thing worthwhile. And if you stretch it, you've still got the same amount of story. And if you compress it, you've still got the same amount of story. And when it's compressed, you know, you look at a Val Luton movie, that is a lot of compressed story in an hour and 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and you come away feeling as if as satisfied as if you watched a two-hour movie. And I watched a two-hour movie last night. Possibly more so, actually. Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, I watched a two-hour movie last night and came away, you know, feeling vaguely dissatisfied as if I'd just eaten a bucket of, um, of popcorn for, uh, for a main meal. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, you know, not the same thing. And that kind of tight compression, you know, it goes back to Hitchcock again, you know, the tightness and the compression of story. Is is um, is is everything, you know? And you can't cover it with dialogue, and you can't uh, you can't stretch it out and 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 do it with padding. You know, you've got to have story. Yes. The second of your uh, novels that gets adapted, I'm right in saying, is October. Yeah. It? Yeah. Mm. A again, dealing with fairly high concepts and you know, consciousness and things. But you got to direct that yourself. Is that was that your first thing you directed? It is. Yeah. I mean, I'd done. Um, I mean, I used to shoot Super Eight as a kid. Mm. And then one of the first things I did when I left Granada was, was I bought a 16 mil camera and dragooned a bunch of mates and we made a movie together, you know, which um, I can tell you now we'll never see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we had a great time doing it. 
and I persuaded people to do stuff that was way outside the comfort zone and they had a good time. And at the end of the day, you know, we had a party and we, um, and we, you know, we watched the movie. And to my mind, it doesn't get any better than that. And if I can reproduce that, you know, in any, anything I do in my career, you know, that is the model for it. But October came about. I was working on, um, on bugs um, for, uh, for Brian Eastman, who I, I just mentioned. And um, I got an approach from Kevin Loder over at the BBC, producer there. And uh, the X-Files was quite big at the time. And he said, yes. here at the BBC, we're looking for a kind of British X-Files for the BBC. Have you got anything? And of course, I don't like to just kind of come up with some shallow suggestion off the spur of the moment, because it will usually be something derivative from something else. But I do look at my wish list of things that I want to do. And October, as an adaptation, is something that I really, really wanted to do. I'd, uh, it had been optioned by a producer called Ian Smith, um, production manager and producer on some of you know David Putnam's great stuff, Chariots of Fire, The Mission. Um, yeah, oh, that was him. Local hero he produced. So a guy with some credits. And um, the director that he brought into um, to the sessions on that was Mike Newell, a director with some credits uh, of his own. Yes, um, yes and indeed. Although we never made the movie, that was such an educational experience, meeting with the guys and just discussing the, uh, you know, the material. And I remember Mike Newell saying something like, you know, in my end is my beginning. And that's something fairly profound in storytelling terms because the ending of something has always got to be implicit in the beginning of something. You know, the ending is, in a way, you know, the, the fulfilment of what you began the story with. And if you don't have the two of them as, as interlocking pieces, then you don't have a piece of work. And that's, that's always kind of stuck with me. And there were a few things like that. And um, we didn't make the movie. And the option came back to me and we moved on. And then I got this call a few years later from, uh, from Kevin Loder looking for a British X-Files. And I said, I've got this thing called October you know, which is um, possibly the kind of thing you're looking for. Would you like to uh, talk about it? And we had discussions and, you know, I went down to TV centre and we developed it and um, I worked it up into a fairly, uh, fairly detailed proposal and they put it on the programme controller's desk and not for the first time in my career, it sat on the programme controller's desk and sat there and sat there and sat there and the deadline for commissioning that season expired and the deadline for commissioning the next season approached. And in the meantime, one of the, uh, the senior um, guys at um, the BBC went over to um, ITV Network Centre and became the network commissioner there. And so ITV were kind of jealous of bugs because we were doing an ITC-style Saturday night show, and ITV didn't have anything like that. Mm. So I took it over to ITV Network Centre and said, you know, we, we worked together on bugs. Would you like something a bit bugs-like for ITV? And um, after a lot of backing and forthing, I think he wasn't that keen on it and, uh, and his assistant had to fish it out of the bin and persuade him to, um, to take a second look at it. Um, he came back and says, yeah, I think, you know, I think we'd like to talk about this. So I went to Brian, Brian Eastman, and said, you know, I'm, I've got this thing going with, uh, with um, ITV. Would you be interested in coming on board as producer? And Brian said, yeah, I would. He said, "I'll, um, I'll," yeah, and he, he took up the option and he paid for a, a first episode script. And in the meantime, I had told ITV that it was a writer-director project that I had going at the BBC that was going nowhere, and he could <laughs> steal it from under the noses. And I fully expected not to get away with that. 
I, I expected to be called out and say, yeah, well, you've never directed anything. So we'll, you know, we may do the show, but you won't direct it. And nobody ever called me out on it. So I was plunged in. It was the, the budget was something like two and a half million quid for the uh, for the three episodes. And um, I went out on set never having directed anything apart from this, you know, handheld camera thing with my mates up in the Lake District, you know, the year I left Granada. And it was a baptism of fire. Scariest thing I've ever done. Hugely enjoyable. Came out at the end of it convinced that I'd not done a great job. Convinced that I'd not even done a good job. 99% of the crew were, uh, were dead supportive. And one or two of them were obviously, you know, didn't have much confidence in me because I'd not been to film school. Um, and that undermined me a little bit. Looking back at right. it now, I did a far better job than I gave myself credit for. Because um, I mean, when it came out, it seemed to go down okay, didn't it? It's, it did, it, it yeah. I mean, I've, I, I avoid, I, I do avoid reviews because they can be so. Um, yes. They can be so affecting in the wrong way. You know, I mean, you, you you can revel in your good reviews and that's harmful, or you can be affected by your bad reviews and that's harmful as well. So I yes. can't actually see an upside to it. So uh, so I do tend to avoid them. Every now and again, word would sneak through to me. I, I know that. Um, the um, the TV critic of the Catholic Herald, I think it was, criticised the fact that the um, the show ended with um, <laughs> with an unbelievable resurrection. <laughs> and I thought, well, you can bloody talk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, it uh, it transferred over to ITV, two and a half million quid, and and I got my directing shot. And I was all up for doing more after that. But what had happened was I'd spent more or less two years of my life on this. You know, there was, uh, there was the writing of it and then there was the shooting of it and then there was post-production. And at the end of all of that, um, I had no new projects to bring to market. And of course, as a writer, it's a case of, you know, while one is going out, you, um, you're working on the next one. As a director, I couldn't do that. I'd written it, then I'd directed it. Then I came out and I had, and I, you know, I remember thinking at the time I could, I could go broke being this successful. And... <laughs> And I had a thing called uh, Victorian Gothic, which was a period drama, which um, Steve Tompkinson and he was partnered with Dervla Kerwin at the time. And they had a little production company going together and they were looking for something to make. And um, they were very keen on doing Victorian Gothic. And Jane Tranter picked it up for, uh, for BBC One. And we developed the script. And I had, um, I had three very, uh, very good executive producers who I met with at the BBC who really brought the script along. Uh, one of them was Pippa Harris, who is now with um, with Neil Street Productions, um, and another was Jane herself, and um, that got developed up to um, a really, really strong point, and went onto the program controller's desk. And guess what? You know, the um, the deadline approached, and the deadline passed, and we didn't even get a no. That was the uh, the annoying thing. And in the end, you know, I got it back, and that eventually became my novel, The Kingdom of Bones which was the start of a trilogy of, um, of, of period novels, which um, kind of reinvented my career in America after, uh, after the, horror, the bottom dropped out of the horror boom. But that's a whole other story. Do you find that um, the inherent problems of not writing stuff, just getting stuff made, is the biggest issue with writing for, 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 for TV or film? At least you can feel possibly a bit more in control with prose. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, if... If I was, if I was one of those writers who kind of, you know, an employee of almost an employee of uh, of a company where you you do what they want again and again and again and again, but 
my problem is that everything I do is different. I reinvent the wheel every time. And that's not for, um, you know, that's not out of perversity. It's simply because going right back to the beginning, I wanted to have a go at everything. You know, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do radio. Mm. I wanted to do TV. I wanted to do movies. Um, I wanted to do comics. It's taken a while, but here we are. And, <laughs> and within genres, you know, I wanted to do crime. I wanted to do science fiction. I wanted to do fantasy. I was, I was kind of, you know, moving from, uh, from, from one thing to another. Um, and I didn't settle into one thing. And of course, to be rich and successful in this game, in the way that most people think of as rich and successful, what you do is you find the one thing that you um, that you can succeed with and you do the same thing again and again and again and again. Never been able to do that. Um, you know, I've just not been able to settle on the one thing. Writing episodes of Bugs was the longest run of anything where I've kind of repeated, uh, repeated myself. Um, never been able to do it since. But you, whether fair or unfair, you're probably known as a genre writer, aren't you? I'm happy to be known as a genre yeah. writer, yeah, uh, because everything I do kind of resonates with genre one way or another. Mm. And the crime stuff that I've done is stuff that I think nobody but a horror writer could have written. It resonates with, I mean, I did a book called Downriver, uh, which is my zombie story, uh, in that there is um, a policeman called Johnny Mays in it who drives his car off, um, off a dam. And the car is fished out and the car is empty. It's a... It's a a thing that's haunted me since I was a kid. I saw a, a, an indie movie called Carnival of Souls, which was oh, unknown such a great for, movie. It was unknown for yeah. decades. It's quite well known now. Yes, um, but for a while, it was kind of you know one of those secrets that I carried. Um, yes. and that lovely thing of you know the the person who goes into the water and then comes out of the water and has a life, and then they were dead all along. Yeah. And that kind of yeah. informs Downriver, you know, that's the cop in Downriver, except that in that, you know, he's not a ghost, he wasn't dead all along, but he comes out of the water and he might as well have been dead all along because he follows that same trajectory. So it is, you know, Downriver is my zombie story, The Boathouse is my Little Mermaid story, Chimera is what it is, October, you know, takes you into the realms of the, um, the, the unconscious. They're all exercises in mythic imagination treated with a kind of forensic approach of trying to make it real it's it's really interesting that you said that your two main touchstones were nigel neal and hg wells we've mm. we've talked with a couple of people now uh, while doing this podcast about how um neil and wells are very complementary figures in mm. the way that they're very humane um i think we we went we mentioned that you mentioned earlier on that neil um not liking how doctor who is too scary for children and of course one of the things that came out in one of our conversations is of course that neil neil didn't write to scare people neil wrote to disturb people neil wrote mm. to touch the humane human condition in mm. a way and do you feel that that humanity that 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 interest in the human condition is where your writing is kind of sort of centered you think you seem to i one thing rewatching chimera is how um personal it is on a personal level you've got this sort of thing about the whole problem of humanity science all that kind of thing but it's really about someone's grief someone's you you, you come at it from that direction yeah i mean it's taken me a, it, 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 it's taken me a while to to kind of realize it because at the beginning of your career 
you just imitate what you like. You know, you, you, you rewrite the stuff you love and you don't have any sense of having a set of personal themes. But as you look back over a certain body of work as you build it up, you realize that you have. At least I'd like to think that was the case and that I'm not just re repeating the same old tired bag of tricks. That's another interpretation of it. But, but no, you do, <laughs> you do find that there are, uh, there are, there are various things that, uh, that keep recurring and there are resonances that you're not aware that you're putting in there but they are in there because they inform the choices you make and they inform the unconscious choices you make. And my daughter, when she was quite young, once said to me that all my, you know, she said, dad, all your, uh, all your main characters, they're, they're you really, aren't they? I said, well, I suppose you're right. Yeah. And, uh, and she was, you know, they're all, they're all kind of reflections of, um, of how I feel moving through the world. And, and I just create the worlds that those characters move through. But what else can you do? You know, you, uh, you only have one resource. You can either, you know, steal from outside yourself or you can steal from inside yourself. And if you're stealing from outside yourself, you're just using stuff that anyone can use. Whereas if you, if you reach inside, you know, and you, you look inward, and then, uh, then you're doing something that nobody else can do. You know, you've, it may not be the most popular product in the world. It may not be the best product in the world, but it's certainly, you know, something that nobody else could make. And it's something that's true as well. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, you'd, you're not necessarily consciously reaching for truth at the time, but uh, when you look back, when you've achieved it, you know it. Yes, indeed. Um, you, you, you said Nigel Neal was the, um, the first named television writer you recognised. Um, you were the first named television writer I recognised. Is that right? Oh. Yeah, because of Chimera, seeing yeah. that as, 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 you know, mid-teenager. God, what a responsibility. <laughs> oh, for, yeah, for... In terms of being a young, well, sort of pre-teenager, but being a Doctor Who fan, there were two writers I'd heard of outside of Doctor Who, not not counting like Blake Seven or something, and that was that was Douglas Adams and you. Yeah, uh, I'd wow. see shop. Oh, I, I remember the first time I saw one of your books in the shop, going, "Is that the Warriors Gate guy?" Hmm. Um, I mean, the themes like that can be can be touched on. I see a personal reg like if there's sort of one theme that I think of when I when it work it's disease um, yeah. that, that's a recurrent theme of the threat, threat of disease and that i would have probably started with terminus uh from that but it's gone on into in, in, into other things you know watching say the first episode of the uk 11th hour is incredibly present present at the moment um really yeah yes yeah but um sometimes i think there are you know there are there are tropes that, that, that work uh, throughout fiction um, that are not, it's not, I think they're consciously even copied or borrowed, but they, they, they effectively work. And when I saw Chimera, and I was, I was re-watching it in advance of this, uh, I don't, again, I don't know if it's in, in, in the novel, you can, you, you can tell me, but the scene in episode two, where the children are having a tea party with Chad, but you haven't seen Chad yet, and they're just mm. calling him the Scarecrow, mm. Mr. Mm. Scarecrow. And you know, whatever happens, he will not hurt the children. Um, and it echoes the scene in Frankenstein. It echoes the scene in uh, particularly the film version of Quatermass Experiment. Um, and something that's an awesome threat, but that will, you know, that will destroy, but yet respects the... Frankenstein's monster does throw the little girl into the lake. <laughs> he, he does, actually, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, but nevertheless, yeah. 
I mean, this, yeah, I mean, this, the, 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 in terms of it kills their mum. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't mean yeah. it. Yeah. He's, he's, he's trying to be funny. I mean, the other influence there, and somebody picked on it at the time, was Whistle Down the Wind, which is the first, yes. yeah. the first yeah. movie that I ever saw in the cinema. And I remember going to the ah, cinema in okay. Salford with my grandmother to see that. And it made a huge impression on me. And, and years and years later, I, um, I wrote to Brian Forbes and kind of thanked him for it and said, you know, you made a, a, you know, a big impression on me and, uh, and have provided some of the fuel for my career. And I sent him a copy of Nightmare with Angel, which, if anything, goes even more to, um, to whistle down the wind. And I don't know if he read it. He probably, you know, popped it on his shelf or, or, or passed it to a relative or something like that. But, um, but I got a very nice note back from him of appreciation. So it was a contact I made there. Brian Forbes, of course, in the Hammer version of Clayton has two. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I, I one one thing that struck me rewatching Chimera was actually how well I felt you'd structured the horror. So we're talking about the Mr. Scarecrow scene. Yeah. And we know that Chad is not going to harm the children, which makes it all the more gut wrenching mm. when you see the smashed up tea party mm. and then he brutally murders their parents. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and that's done immediately after mm. after an amusing joke involving a chimp and a rude sign language thing, which oh yeah, you know it's it is, you know watching it, you just go oh oh that's good that's really kind actually, of yeah and actually, that's, punch that, that, that's just reminded me of the scene I don't know if you've seen it Stephen the Doctor Who story Doctor Who and the Silurians um, many years ago okay yeah because it's got um, one of the Silurians who's injured hides himself in a barn and a farmer discovers him and, mm. he, and, he, and, and, and he kills him. And I thought, I, I don't think, I don't, you know, I th I'm not accusing you of deliberately nicking a scene <laughs> that Nick from, from Nigel himself, but I think it's another example of the great trope of something or something in the woodshed, isn't it? Mm. It's something, it's something you reach back on there somewhere. It's a great place to hide, whether it's whistled down the wind or whether yeah. it's, 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 it's yeah. out now horror. It's an effective setting. Yeah. We've um, all seen the same movies, I think is what it comes yeah, down to. Yeah. That's what it is. Well, so when it came to doing uh, the eleventh hour, now am I right in thinking that wasn't based on a novel? But you just said the character was in a was your sort of your Quatermass, your your version of Quatermass, or, or your inspiration that were created by Quatermass appeared in the short story. Was that right? The way that came about was I had a meeting of what they call a general at, um, at Granada um, with uh, Shafaldi Malhutra, who was a development producer there, and she said, uh, "My boss Andy Harris, he's got twin boys." Um, so, you know, he's, he's really interested in cloning. Have you got anything on clone? You know, you did Chimera. Have you got anything on cloning? And I said, no, I said, and you don't want to do cloning. I said, because everybody gets cloning wrong. So, you know, they, a clone is just a time shifted twin. It's not a thing without a soul. It's, it's not an instant adult, you know, it's not a, a double that goes out and, you know, wreaks havoc. It's just the time. It's just another person, a time shifted twin. And it's not necessarily the same person again. You know, it's a whole new set of personality and a whole new set of personality traits. You know, just as in two twins can be similar in so many ways, but are two distinct personalities, so clones are. This is what they always get wrong with cloning. I said, and if you were yes. doing a cloning story, then this is what you should do. And that is when I kind of started ranting about the opposite of cloning. I said, you know, where the real the real story is, is in the attempts and the repeated attempts that get it wrong and waste life after life after life after life as you, um, as you, as you make little monsters that can't survive. So you bury one, you make another little monster that can't survive. You know, you're trying to get, you're trying to get the one that rises and cooks properly. 
And that's where the opening um, scene, the opening image of the little graves all through the woodland um, of the um, of the guy who couldn't bring himself to incinerate them, but gave each one of them a little Christian burial. And it, it flowed from that. I remember seeing um, a show called Danny Dares, where Danny Bear, um, oh, yes. TV presenter, did a, a different challenge every week. And one week that. she went to bodyguard school. And the, the enter, it was only a little half-hour thing, and um, they put her through the paces at bodyguard school. And the, the intention was obviously, oh, you know, we'll see the bimbo sort of flail away around the assault course and, uh, and you yeah. know, sort of yelp at the guns and everything else. And she aced it, and she came out top of the class at the end of it. And they said to her, you could have a career in this because you in a cocktail dress on the arm of a billionaire would be the most invisible bodyguard in the world. And I thought, shit, yeah. So the idea was, you know, Emma Peel and Bernard Quatermass were, were my kind of pairing because I, I loved the Avengers, absolutely loved the Avengers. Right. Got, got yeah. to know Brian Clemens in later life, absolutely proud of that, you know, really pleased. He wrote the intro to my short story collection. I wrote the intro to his, you know, and... Um, he did Bugs, didn't he? Uh, he he was kind of in at the creation of Bugs. He right. never wrote an episode. Oh, okay. But, um, he was a, a story consultant on every one of them. Right. Okay. It, on... It's very much the Brian Clemens sort of show, but it is. Yeah. Really, it, isn't it, it? it set out to be. You know. Mm. And it's, yeah. Um, I mean, see it, yeah. We never got to Avengers standard. I've got to say, but we had a, a great time trying. Um, I remember it being a thoroughly entertaining show. Just it was just fun. great fun. Yeah. 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 But uh, but Emma Peel, you know, was the uh, was the role model for for the bodyguard in uh, in 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 Eleventh Hour, as right. was um, Bernard Quatermass. Not so much a John Steed character, but more a Bernard Quatermass character. And I had the idea of you've got this this older man and the young bodyguard in a kind of father daughter relationship almost, and he's the older unreconstructed guy. She's, you know, he doesn't quite get feminism. You know, he, he has a go, but he doesn't quite get feminism. And, uh, you know, he says, she offers him a coffee and he says, oh, I'm glad to see those hairy little feminist legs can still make it into the kitchen. And, uh, and you know, she kind of bops him about the head. And uh, I, I don't think those lines made it in. But uh, well, that was certainly the kind of tone that I was going for. Um, I don't think Patrick was quite up for it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, anyway, the uh, it developed from there, and um, and it got a little bit rocky after that because I was intent upon making a science show that respected the science in the same way that if you're doing a medical show, you know you don't make up your diseases and you don't make up your cures. Yes. And if you're doing a legal show, you don't make up the laws. You know you can't have one week where you're hanging somebody when there is no capital punishment, you know, under the current judicial system, because you're into an alternate world scenario if you if you're doing that. To the same extent, Eleventh Hour was never to be a science fiction show. But I had some quite, you know, headbutting moments with the producers on, you know, what constituted science and what constituted science fiction. You know, and something that they, they, you know, they'd read in the newspaper as uh, as being on the cards, and you know, this will be happening in in ten years' time is not science. You know, that is science fiction. The, the Daily extent, Mail says so. It must be true. Yeah, to the extent that the show kind of got away from me, and uh, we had a complaint in the Times Educational Supplement about one of the episodes from uh, from a former um, chief scientist at, uh, to the government. Um, oh. about how the uh, the science was inaccurate. I wrote to him, I said, look, you know, it was all right leaving me. <laughs> but 
but again, you know, 11th Hour was a show that I didn't, I wasn't a showmaker on it. I was a writer who handed the scripts over and then they kind of took them and ran with them. And but you had a better experience with the American version. I did, I did. The, um, the first thing I knew about that was I got a call from Shefali, who, um, who had, um, had not been able to participate in the making of the show further down the line, although you know, I, I credit her with the development of it and it would have been great if I'd been able to carry on working with her. But I got a call from her saying, congratulations on the American sale. And I said, well, what American sale is this? And um, Granada had sold the, um, the format rights to Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, the, uh, the script had been picked off a pile by Christiane Reed, um, one of uh, Bruckheimer's TV people. JBTV um, is a very, very small, tight and effective unit. Some very good people in there. She'd picked this script off, uh, off a pile and immediately taken it to Jerry. And Jerry had uh, said, let's buy it. And um, I got a call from my agent to say, oh, um, you know, the, the Bruckheimer people are in London. They'd like to meet you. And I said, oh, that's nice, you know, but the show kind of got away from me. You know, I, I wasn't involved in it beyond a certain point. And, um, and I, I kind of didn't want to be involved in it beyond a certain point because it had gone so far from, from what I'd originally conceived. And um, I thought out of politeness, you know, they'd, they'd come, it was nice of them. So I'll, I'll certainly go and meet them. And I went down and I met with Christiane and, um, and um, I said to them, uh, you know, what brings you to London? And they said, oh, we've, we've come over to meet you. So that was my first experience of the, um, the importance that the writer is, is given in American TV. I think it's, I think it's um, an inheritance from the days of early television when radio people were making the TV shows. And radio producers were people who both wrote and produced, cast and, um, and did everything else on the show. They went into early American TV. And that was the kind of production model. You know, the writer was expected to, uh, to have close involvement. And that, in my mind, is where the current showrunner culture comes from, that we don't have in Britain, but they do have in America, in that you have a writer-producer at the head of the tree making all of the practical and creative decisions and everybody else fitting in around that one decision maker. Um, and, you know, as, mm. as an enormous egotist, that really appeals to me. And so what happened was <laughs> I didn't go over with the show um, straight away. In the meantime, I got offered um, Crusoe, which was actually my first American TV showmaking experience. Um, because while they were developing 11th Hour for America, we were making Crusoe for America, but with a British production company and an American producer. And I was working with, uh, with Jeff Hayes, um, the American producer on that. And he was treating me as a producer would treat an American writer. And that partnership was kind of my easing into the American way of doing things where the writer actually is a showmaker. And so the day that Crusoe finished shooting or the day that my commitment on it finished, I was on a plane and I was over there and I was meeting again with the Bruckheimer people in New York. I met the entire writing team who were working on 11th Hour. I met the cast and the crew who were on the set shooting. And then I came away and I freelanced the, um, the two episodes of that show that I did. Had we got a second season, I would have um, relocated over there and um, I would have uh, worked far more intensively and far more in an involved manner on the second season but we didn't get picked up for a second season there are economic reasons behind that as much as anything else which um which are kind of galling you know to know that you had you had the ratings you had the audiences uh, you had the momentum 
you had a really good show that um, that everybody who worked on it loved doing. There was a fan campaign, in fact, to try oh, to save it. I read. Yeah. Um, people were sending broken watches to uh, to CBS. You know, broken at eleventh uh, hour, eleven wow. o'clock, and and it was lovely. But you know that it's uh, when they've taken the decision. There's, yeah. uh, there's no reversing it. The reason why they took the decision was because that was the year when all of the um, the networks were uh, were saving money by bringing their production in house. Each of the networks had its own production arm. And in the case of Eleventh um, Hour, it was being made by Warner Brothers. It was being made by Warner Brothers, licensed to CBS. And Rookhammer had done a really, really good deal with CBS. Good deal for for Warner Brothers and him. Not so good for CBS. CBS had a show that CBS Studios was making called Medium. And what happened was that um, they took Medium back from NBC and put it on the CBS network and dropped Eleventh Hour. So they were making, they were making it, and they were showing it in the case of medium. So it was like they were taking the money out of one pocket and putting it into another, as right. opposed to handing it over to an external uh, producer like Warner Brothers. They didn't uh, they didn't drop CSI or any of their really big hitters. But Eleventh Hour was a ten o'clock show. It was a ten o'clock show that was bringing in ten and a half, eleven and a half. I think our our, our season average was twelve and a half million people at 10 o'clock at night for, for you know, American TV where six or seven is average. And I think at our, um, our absolute height, we pulled in 15 and a half million. So it was not the ratings that killed 11th hour. And it certainly wasn't the, um, the quality because I love the quality of the show, but it didn't happen. But in the meantime, um, Brookheimer offered me a slot on one of his other shows. Um, and I met with the showrunner and we did a thing called The Forgotten for ABC. And... I was out there for two years altogether and had an absolute whale of a time. Forgotten's never been shown over here, so uh, so <laughs> no point puzzling yourself over whether you remember it or not. It was no, Christian I've read Slater. about it, but never yeah, seen it. Yeah, I've heard of it, yes. Yeah, but... Christian Slater and a team of amateur detectives, and that never got past first season either. So I'm beginning to think I'm a kind of genius. <laughs> <of these things. laughs> but I had a great time, and I sold several pilots. And... Um, I had a development deal with Brookheimer as well, where we uh, we developed various things that uh, that never came to fruition. But some of the stuff that uh, that I'd pitched and developed while I was over there, even when I didn't sell it over there, I've sold it over here since. You know, some of it's got made. Nigel Neal notably um, would dismiss any cause of him being uh, a science fiction writer or a horror writer, because Neil, I think, had very distinct um, ideas about what those what those terms entailed. Now, while you're happy to be known as a, as, as a, as a genre writer. Um, it seems like you're cautious of the ideas that you will present as science being taken and run with to being areas that you're not quite happy with. Because again, like Neil, was, like Neil they're perceived to be science fiction and therefore pigeonholed in a certain way. Do you think that's, that's fair that it's deliberately limiting by sort of self-selecting via, via genre? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think Neil's entitled to say that because, in a way, his stuff precedes, you know, his, his stuff is the raw material from which science fiction and, you know, horror or whatever can be then riffed. Mm. The rest yeah, of us, it, it's almost like, you know, he's, he's, the, um, he's the original with no, uh, with no boundaries. And then we can take different parts of him and we can make something of that. Um, I don't know if I'm being clear about this, but... 
I think, I think so. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't help now. I think you just think of, even if you don't really know what it's mm. about, Quatermass is science fiction. Mm. But in 1953, there was no idea of this is genre TV. There, mm. there was barely TV. Yeah. So you're looking at something that then would be now line of duty in terms yeah. of event television. This mm. is something that's, you know, new and original, new and original drama. Mm. But now um, through an ideas of, oh, this is something you'd stick on BBC Four. But the, he was writing before the, the concept of genre was a thing on, on, on telly. And he, even like HG uh, Wells was known for scientific romances. Mm. No one, people didn't do terms like sci-fi slash fantasy and stick it in that section of the bookshop. But I think now the idea of just compartmentalizing everything and how it knows me going off on one about you know, terms like folk horror and that yeah. it has to mean something and it can't mean anything beyond this is just a massive limitation. It's mm. convenient in a way of trying to describe something, but if you then obsess about what the limits of those things are, all you do is compartmentalize and therefore reduce every piece of work into a category which what may work for you, but doesn't necessarily work for what the artist wants to wants, wants to communicate. It's the Judge Potter Stewart thing. The um, yeah. the the I'll know it when I see it. Well, thing. I, th- I think the phrase that sui generis comes into its own. In yes, this because yeah. um, I was looking through the um, you know the list of uh, of Neil's filmography, televisionography, whatever you want to call it. I mean, for a lot of his career, he was quite the journeyman. You know, mm. you look at his very early stuff pre Quatermass. And he was doing adaptations. He was doing um, one-off oh, radio nice. plays. Yeah. But what struck me as really significant was that I started kind of jotting down just the key points of his um, of his oeuvre to um, to sort of keep by me as as a little reminder as we were talking here. I haven't really needed it, I've got to say. But um, but what struck me as I was getting to to the bottom of it was that all the stuff that I was taking out, you know, I was I was jotting down the Quater Masses, 1984, the Creature, the Road. Sex Olympics, Stone Tape, of course, which is uh, you know, mm. the pinnacle for me. And then Beasts and, you know, finally The Woman in Black. And then nothing really much after that. But they're all the stuff that I think of as the body of work of Nigel Neal. Mm. And the rest of it is kind of stuff that almost anyone anyone could have written. You know, the uh, an episode of Sharp or, uh, or an adaptation of Wuthering Heights. They probably, were I to see them now, I would recognise his hand in them. But they're not the things I think of when I think of Nigel Neal and when I think about the the kind of core pillar of his career. You know, and I think, you know, sui generis, if you want sui generis Nigel Neal, then that list of titles is um, is is what you need. And there are adaptations in there. Obviously, there's Woman in Black and there's, uh, you know, First Men in the Moon. But um, but his originals particularly. Yeah, but even his yeah. even his adaptations. Yeah. I think um, the um, is it Sharp's Gold is mm. is was a Sharp episode that bears very little relation to Bernard Cornwall's mm. story. That's that's Neil going somewhere 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 he 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 he, he wants with it. Mm. But you know, for years he was known as an, an, a reliable adapter. Mm. Uh, Quite a mass experiment only comes around because the BBC has a gap in the schedules. He was a BBC staff writer, and they just went, "You've got six weeks, do something." I think there's a tremendous kind of um, honour in that as well. You know, the I did um, a collaboration with Chris Moore, the the artist, um, and he's you know one of the best science fiction commercial artists that this country's produced, and he's very kind of self-deprecating about his stuff. and And I suggested the title Journeyman for the book, and he uh, he embraced it. 
because that's what he regards himself as. But he does work to this incredibly high standard and also has created this incredible body of work. And I also take great pride on those occasions when I've been asked to come in and work on something. You know, I love nothing better than to be thrown a job where they have a short deadline. You know, they've made a, they've made a sale. They've got a short deadline. The thing's fallen through and they're desperate. And they need someone who will come in and kind of put the thing on its feet and make it, you know, make it into something. That was the basis on which I got the, the job on Crusoe. You know, they had a director and they, the director had a writer, uh, a couple of Canadian guys. And they'd gone off to do their thing and they'd carved up um, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe into 13 chapters or 13 equal divisions. And they'd based each hour of the show on that. So you had one part where it was an hour of um, Crusoe and Friday building a boat and discussing the relationships with the fathers. But the producer, meantime, had sold this show to NBC on the basis of it being a kind of a TV version of Pirates of the Caribbean. High adventure, <laughs> a buddy movie. I mean, not one person <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the loop had actually read the book, I don't think. Um, but, you know, I came in at very, very short notice um, I thought I was coming in to do an episode and I said, well, you know, before, uh, before I can do an episode or before I can do a pitch or even talk about this, I need to know, you know, who's the showrunner and what's the showrunner's concept for the show. And the answer I got was, well, we were rather hoping you might be able to come up with something. So I came up with something over the weekend, you know, by, by taking Daniel Defoe's life story and making that Crusoe's backstory and, um, and also making Friday the knowledgeable one in the partnership because um, there is no way that this 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 young white man from york is going to be teaching this this black guy from the south seas how to build a boat which is more or less what happens in the book all the skills come from friday to crusoe so the two of them have an equal relationship that was done very much um, kind of you know in a hurry i absolutely love the experience a few years later stanley's lucky man for uh, for carnival films oh yes They'd, they'd, um, they'd undercalculated um, the number of writers they needed for the show, and they had an episode that had no writer. You know, episode number seven, they just had a gap in the schedule and they needed something. So Gareth Neem, who I'd worked with on Lifeline, uh, said, why don't you give Steve a call, see if, uh, if he can do anything. And I said, OK, you know, tell me what the show's about. Tell me what you've got. Tell me what the previous episode's about. Tell me where you want the story to go. I'll come up with three pitches. If you like one of them, we'll settle on it and um, you know, I'll develop that further. If you don't like any, we'll try again. If we try again and it doesn't happen, then it's never going to happen. And they picked one story out of the three. And you know, in a matter of weeks, I turned it round and it was shot. And uh, in, uh, in the Radio Times, I think it was, says, oh, tonight's number seven and it's the best one of the show so far. And I thought, well, that's bloody make sure that I'll never be asked to do it again then. So... <laughs> <laughs> And sure enough, I wasn't asked. But uh, but no, I, I, you know, I took great pride in that. So the whole journeyman thing, you know, the, that whole sort of section of, of Neil's career, I entirely identify with. I, I can see, I can see why. And if you said do an over of Steve Gallagher's work, there would be, you know, Chimera, October, eleventh hour, um, working through in the same way of the sort of touch points in, yeah. interspersed with the journeyman. I mean, you know, even with but you know, like. A, uh, like Moraine, like his episode of mm. Ladies, Ladies Night, um, you know, an episode of yeah. the episode of something like theatre that, 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 that he did. And simply mm. because, you know, there's a combination of I've got ideas. He was never he was never really a novelist, but 
I've got ideas that I can work in, as well as any of you've got your troubleshooters that he had his, I had, I was a skillful adapter mm. of, of things. Um, and similar to that, I think that's um, whatever you're known for, that's, you know, that keeps you, that, that, that keeps you working in between the yeah, you can be a precious artist and say, yeah. I will only work on the things that obsess me and I will only do, you know, work on the things that express my innermost being. What happens then is you'll never get to make anything. No, I think that's often where, and having, having said that, I mean, Neil wasn't, he wasn't adverse to sort of burning bridges. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he would have, I think, worked in Hollywood a bit more had he not demanded his name was taken off. Halloween three because it's mm. not what's not what he wanted. But mm. do you have sympathy with that, or are you just like that's yeah you know, that that's how this particular bit goes? Nigel, suck it up, and you'll oh, get I have entire sympathy with it, and I also think you know there is a certain element of that, you know. But you, uh, you know, you. I don't. I'm not. I'm not someone who does burn bridges, but there are you know some things that I will not go back to, you know, and some places I will not go again simply because I, it was so annoying and so unsatisfying that uh, you would feel as if you were humiliating yourself to uh, to return for the same punishment all over again. But most of the time, you know, you accept the fact that um, you're working with other people and uh, you get as much done as you possibly can. There is a percentage of, um, of what you achieve that will be, you know, what you wanted to do and there is a percentage that isn't. But what I quickly realised when, when I started directing was that um, it's possible to get what you asked for and realise that it wasn't what you wanted. And this happens every day on the set. You know, you, um, you've, you've got this idea in your mind. Everybody who, who wants to direct has got this perfect movie in the mind. And most people never actually have the experience of going out there and being given the tools with which to do it and then realising that the perfect movie in your mind ain't that perfect and it doesn't necessarily work the way that you thought it was going to work. So at that point, that's the point at which you have to be creative and you start working with what you've got, not what you wish you had or not what you imagined having. And it takes me back to the whole thing that I began with, you know, which is, you know, not just a writer, but a showmaker. And I was talking to um, um, Joe Ahern and Adam Gantz um, at um, Scott Free Productions um, a couple of years ago. Uh, Scott Free had uh, adoption Chimera for a reboot stroke not remake but modern version which would kind of pick up 20 years after chimera had happened and and adam and joe were going to be writing it you know with my agreement and approval and i said at that point you know how far do you want me to be involved in this you know because i will either stand back and let you run with it and have nothing to do with it or i will be over it like a wet shirt you know, there at every point at every department available and interfering. But there is no halfway. You know, there is you either stand back or you get in and you get your hands dirty. That would have been a really good show, by the way. But it's yet another on the list of things that uh, might have been. That would have been. That would have been very good. I particularly like John Lynch to appear in that now. He's, he's, he's he looks he's looks so distinct. You know, I was watching him and um, he's in yeah, the, he's in uh, the terror. It would have been a new young cat. Well, John Lynch looks no different now. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I, said, I said the only thing that had aged badly about Crimea was John Lynch's hair. That is, uh, well, that's so 90s. The, uh, well, the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have yeah. to have the hair again. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it would, have been a, it would have been a bright young cast. But 
um, you know, Lynch would have been there to be sought out and questioned for this thing that happened all this time ago. And Chad would have been there as well, kind of locked away and, uh, and still alive. And, uh, Oh, Chad's not dead. So, but it never happened. One last question, which isn't directly relevant, to know as well. I've not read it yet, but you've rewritten um, Warrior's Gate for an audiobook, haven't you? Yeah, rewritten's not really the word. Re, okay. uh, reassembled is the word, okay. because um, the story behind that is that when I when I wrote the novelization originally, I based it on the first draft. Well, certainly the um, you know the, the writer's draft that I handed in to uh, to the BBC, which then got heavily made over. And then when John Nathan Turner saw the um, the proofs of the novelization, he wouldn't um, he wouldn't pass it. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't sign off on it because he said it had gone too far from the script. So again, you know, in a, in a very very short time with a very very tight deadline, I had to remake the book and uh, and make it far more compliant to uh, to the tv version and because this was pre-computers it, you know scissors and paste actually meant scissors and paste in those right, days yeah. so the original manuscript got um, got ripped up and and reassembled and i kept all the bits in uh, in an envelope and uh-huh. over the years the uh, the the unpublished original version of warrior's gate kind of entered fan legend to the extent that um, Every now and again, someone would say to me, would you be interested in putting it back together? And I thought about this envelope full of bits and I thought, you know, sounds a bit, a bit of a challenge. I said, if somebody else wants to, to take it on, you know, I'll give you a copy of the script. I'll give you all the bits and you see if you can put the jigsaw back together. Mine's just B.S. Johnson's The Untouchables. <laughs> <laughs> but it did, yeah. uh, you know, when it came to it, um, I sat down and did it. And um, and it worked, you know, the um, the original manuscript, I could hold it up to the light and I could see through the tipex as to what was written there. And um, I was able to follow the scripts and, and put it all back together. Very little kind of joined up writing needed to be doing in order to make it work. So what you've got there is the um, is the original. Yeah. And on the basis of that, um, it wasn't. It's not been published um, in uh, in prose form, but it has been done by BBC Audio. So yeah. John Colshaw resolving, mm-hmm. which is the next best thing to having Tom do it. And so, other than that, thank you very much for your time, Steve. Oh, thank you, thank you, Stephen. It's been great. Thank Thanks very much. Bye bye. Thanks once again to Stephen Gallagher for joining us on this episode of Birdcast. Burcast was presented by John Deere and me, Howard Ingham, and was engineered by Emma Cooper. Thanks for listening.